Dear Lord, we thank You for this time together today. A time to remember. A time to worship. Lord, I pray that as we open Your Word, that You would give us Your eyes and Your heart that we might receive from You. I pray, God, that You would transform our spirits today and mold us into Your image. Lord, I thank You in advance for the power of Your Word to work through our lives and to change us and to make us like You. In Your name we pray this morning. Dear Jesus, Amen. You have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as we continue in this series on jawbreakers. And I, say, I call them jawbreakers because they're, they're difficult to handle. They're difficult text. Uh, they're hard to chew on. If you just try to take it and plop it in your mouth and just uh, take a big bite and swallow it, uh, it won't go down very well. And so we kind of have to unwrap these and we kind of have to take some time and, and work on these a little bit, kind of like you do a jawbreaker. And so uh, this text right here and this passage right here is, is certainly a difficult one. It's certainly a hard message that Christ gives us here today. And certainly was very difficult for his followers when he said it. It's not that it's just difficult today in our culture. This was a really, really hard message when he gave it uh, to his disciples, when he taught it uh, in the first century. So as we look at this, I, I want us to recognize a couple of things. First of all, let me say this. We have a great ministry called Crown Ministry, which helps people put their finances together and helps you understand biblically how God wants to handle our finances. And we'll be teaching that again in the fall. But if you need assistance, if you need help uh, in, in budgeting or just financial assistance, then you need to just let us know. We have our welcome room that's open after this. You just need to communicate to us. Uh, we want to be about helping people and helping the body of Christ grow and develop. And so that's something that we encourage you to do. And then uh, our crown... Uh, our crown series will be starting in the fall, but if you need assistance before then, we, we will offer that one-on-one. -on -one. So I just want to give you that caveat right now and just encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, secondly, uh, when we talk about giving, and we, particularly if you ever use the word tithing, you know, people are all over the mat, but most people come down one of two sides. They'll go, well, uh, tithing, that's it. Ten percent, that's the, that's the amount, and you should be doing it. And if you don't do that, then, then you're missing the boat completely. And then you have other people over here who, and that, that, by the way, they'll take a very legalistic approach on that, that uh, you can't say you love Jesus if it's not exactly ten percent. And then you've got the other group over here on the other side that says, well, you know, it's just whatever you want to do. It's, it's really whatever you want, and really God doesn't require anything. That's just kind of man-made, and we kind of interpret it that way, da-da-da-da. And so it's like two different extremes. And the truth of it is, uh, let me just do a little test here for us. You don't need to write anything down or do anything, but let me just give you a little test, and you can kind of identify where you are. And I think there's a good reason that we see tithing taught in the Bible. It's because most of us struggle to getting where God wants us to be. Uh, most of us fall into one of these, well, all of us fall into one of these five categories. The first one is, I don't give. Matter of fact, some people, I don't give and I won't give. You know what I mean? I'm just not going to do it. And that's my mentality. So there are people there. And maybe that's where you are today. Uh, I, I would say that's not a good place to be. And so I just want to affirm that to you right now. Uh, number two, uh, I'm a guilt or a token giver. 
And what does that mean? Well, it means if you say something about it, make me feel bad, then I'll give you something. And uh, that, and that's kind of well, that's not a real good mentality either. Or um, you know, when the when the offering plate comes by, I throw a coin in. Uh, kind of deal. Kind of like the guy who puts a dime in it. Just, you know, God, don't. I do something. And uh, I put a dime in there every week, make myself feel better. Or the systematic giver, which I believe is very biblical. I think Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, we see it addressed in 2 Corinthians. Uh, the importance of systematically or methodically giving. Establishing a budget and just determining how much you're going to give and having that already said and methodically doing it. Uh, so I think that's a very biblical principle. Uh, another one is the tithe, uh, giving of 10%. And let me say this, I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think uh, Jesus affirms that in Matthew chapter 23, by the way. And I think tithing is a great place uh, to come to and a great place to, to begin. <clears throat> and then there, the, the place where I think God ultimately wants us to be is basically a grace giver, a generous giver. That's ultimately where God wants us to, to be. The problem is most of us can't just go there. Most of us need some kind of standard. We need some kind of, uh, we need some kind of place to begin, a place to, uh, so to speak, uh, understand the parameters, if I can use that term. And I don't think that's where God wants us to stay by any means. But we do that, we do that in life. I mean, just think about it. If you're a parent and you have children, if, you, if your children are already driving age, or they're going to be driving age, do you do this? You, you don't say, you know, I'm, I'm getting you a car, and I'm, I'm giving you this, and I just want to be a grace giver, and I just want to be generous. So you just do what you want. Don't worry about safety. Just, just do what you want. I'm just going to trust you'll be good. And I just trust you'll take care of this car, and you'll maintain it. Don't worry about that defensive driving stuff and those stupid warning signs up there on the road. I just want you to be mature and handle yourself properly. What idiot does that? Right, you know what I mean? If we're a car, we've got, we like put some parameters up there because that's called an, a wreck. That's what that's called right there. That's called high insurance premiums and they ought to take the car away from you. All right? That's what that's called right there. No, we, we have some standards. We say, look, there's some laws of the land that you're going to observe and you're going to need to. And matter of fact, we're going to take some safety courses and we're going to talk about it and, and uh, we're going to start at a place and, and, and you don't drive over this speed limit, okay? And if you're on the interstate, you don't drive under this. You don't drive 20. And you, you have to come up with some parameters. And I think that's kind of the reality of us uh, as individuals and as humans. And so I believe the tithe forms that purpose. God ultimately wants us to be grace givers. That's where he wants us to, to, to arrive at. Uh, but most of us have to start a little earlier than that. We have to start at another place. It's just the hard reality of life. Now, people always want to know this. What, what was the tithe? Uh, how was it originated and what was it for? Well, first of all, it was for the Levites. It was for those who basically maintained the temple and who taught the Word of God, and the Levites and the priests. That's where the tithe would, would go. That's where the 10% that the, uh, the Israelites were required to give, that's where it would go. They would also give uh, for festivals, when they would have festivals, whether it was anything from Day of Atonement to the Festival of Booths to Yom Kippur to um, Purim or whatever it was, the festivals, they would, they would uh, give a certain amount uh, per, that was percentage on their income, and they would come together and they'd have celebrations and they would invite outsiders uh, to participate in the feast. And so that's where part of their money would go. And then apparently every third year there would be what we'd call a welfare 
offering or a welfare gift that would be given every third year that would go directly to the poor, particularly for the widows and orphans, uh, but for the poor. So it was a, a offering, so to, sp- so to speak, that was collected. And you see the Bible addressing uh, the nation of Israel regarding that uh, frequently, by the way. So those were the three purposes the money was given. Now, today in the New Testament, why should we give? What are the biblical reasons that we should give today? Well, first of all, uh, as I read to you earlier, Matthew 23, 23. Let's just look at that passage real briefly. Matthew 23, 23. Matthew 23, 23. And Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees, and he's actually rebuking them. But he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says this, You should have practiced uh, the tithing without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out the gnat, but swallow the camel. We'll talk more about camels in a moment. Jesus affirms right here uh, the tithing, the giving. So he, Jesus in no way is against tithing. Uh, Jesus does not see it uh, as the wrong mentality or the wrong, uh, the wrong issue. He certainly affirms it here. Uh, he just says, you know what, you're missing some bigger things by not exercising justice and mercy. Number two, Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So if, old, if tithing is an Old Testament law, the question we have to ask ourselves today is what does it look like to fulfill the law? I think that's a good question. What does it look like to fulfill the law of Christ? Thirdly, Moses said in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy uh, 14.23, I want you to give, I want you to tithe so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Um, giving is a test of faith. It's not only a test of our faith, it's a testimony. It's a testimony uh, to the world. It's a testimony uh, to the kingdom. It is a a way for us to show our love for Christ to the world by our giving. And the things that we give to ultimately say a lot about who we are. It's also uh, an act of giving unto God. It's an act of worship. Even in Matthew chapter 2, we see that the Magi brought gifts to God, to Jesus Christ, as an act of worship. It's also uh, an act of bringing our first fruits. It's a constant reminder that everything that we have belongs to God. And it also allows us to experience the blessing of God, the blessing of giving, and the blessing of faithfulness in making an impact in His kingdom. And also it's an antidote for covetousness, covetousness, I can't even say that word. And idolatry. Okay, you know what it means to covet? That means you want things. And idolatry, I think that's part of what we're going to see here in just a moment in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now, let's go to that passage and let's look at that for just a moment. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And here's what occurs. Jesus started out on his way and a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, think about this. This is the most basic question of our lives. And this is a very common question that is asked by people in Jesus' day. And it's an issue that the rabbis taught on. 
And this man comes up to Jesus. And she, first of all, we, we find out something about him by the way that he addresses Jesus. Because he says this. He says, good teacher. Good teacher. Good rabbi. He recognizes him as a good man. And Jesus is going to go with him for a moment here. But Jesus is making him think. Jesus is making a point here. And I think there are several nuances here that we can discover in this passage but Jesus right away understands that he doesn't understand who I really am. He thinks I'm just another good rabbi. I'm a rabbi with a good message. I'm a good teacher. And so he says, why, why are you calling me good? If you think I'm a man, why do you call me good? And a matter of fact, he says, don't you know that only God is good? You see the nuance there? I'll tell you who's good. God is good. And ultimately, Jesus reveals that He is God Himself. Good teacher, what do I have to do to enter eternal life? And He says, no one's good but God alone. But what do I have to do? Well, He would have heard this. He knew the answer to this. Virtually every rabbi, I mean, this was the universal approach. If someone asked that question, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? This is what they would be told. You keep the laws of the covenant and you avoid sin. Through the sacrifices and the keeping of the law and the avoidance of sin, that's how you will gain eternal life. And that was, that was just a, an understood response from the rabbis at that point. And so he says, you, you know what the answer is. And Jesus starts listing the Ten Commandments. He starts giving some of the commandments here. You already know the answer. If you're simply going to come to me for your goodness... If that's how you are intending to achieve heaven, to achieve eternal life, you know the answer to that. And he declares to him, Jesus, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, there's more going on in the Greek than we see. He, because basically the connotation is that Jesus looked deeply into him. Jesus took a hard look at him. And Jesus recognizes that the man is telling the truth. He's really been keeping the law. He's really been a, a good guy. He's an upstanding guy in the citizen, in, in, as a citizen, as a member of the temple. He's a good guy. And Jesus looks at him. And in this most basic question, I mean, this is why this is such a hard teaching. This guy's come and asked Jesus, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And this is going to be Jesus' answer. He's already given him the Ten Commandments, which the guy already knew in your method. But now Jesus is going to turn the tables and he's going to invite him to know him his way. But what does he say? And this is hard. I mean, like, I just go and this drives me crazy. What were you thinking, Jesus? And by the way, this is not something that we should say. When somebody says, how do you have an eternal life? Well, one of the things you need to do is start tithing. I mean, that would, if you said that, I would just say, Shut up! Don't say that anymore, okay? This is Jesus, not us, okay? So this is probably not how we should respond to people because we don't have divine discernment and we don't know exactly what people are thinking, exactly what their God is. But Jesus does. He's God. And so what does He do? He says this after He's been asked this question. Jesus looked at Him and He loved Him. And this is what He says. One thing that you lack, He said, Go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. So, what, 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 do you, what do I need to do? I've, I've kept all those laws. How do I get eternal life? Go sell everything you got. 
Everything you got, you're rich, you're wealthy, go sell it all and then come and follow me. What? I mean, we wouldn't like that today, would we? I mean, we'd turn that station, wouldn't we? We heard that. But yet, this is Jesus' very words. And then catch what happens after this. I mean, Jesus is not being a good evangelist at this moment, okay? I mean, he would make a terrible TV evangelist because he lets the guy walk away. What does he say? And the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. The man's face fell and he went away sad. And really, that's probably not a strong enough word, sad. That word grieve that we sometimes interpret that way. If you look in Matthew chapter 26 and then in the, in the book of Mark right here in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is there and when he sweats, drop, you know, basically sweats blood in uh, his grieving, the Bible says that he is in such grief, such great sorrow. This is the same Greek word that's used right here. The man grieves. And this is heavy because that's who I am. Matter of fact, The way Jesus felt about the Father and about us is the way He feels about His wealth. And the man said, and the Bible tells us that He greatly was, He was greatly grieved. He was sad. And He walked away. Wow. Continue. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at His words. But Jesus said again, I'm not through. First of all, you've just kind of really thrown me a curveball, Jesus. And then Jesus says this, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then the disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, "Then who could be saved? Wait, okay, you just let that guy walk away. Jesus, do you know what he could have done for us? Good night. I mean, that's a good dude, Jesus. And he just walked away. And then Jesus says, hey, it's very difficult for the rich to enter heaven. And they're going, what? What do you mean? What does that mean? I mean, not that we're rich, but that was a good guy over there. I mean, they don't say, oh, good. I never liked those people anyway. I'm glad they don't get in. They're going to get what's coming to them. They don't say that. They're going, they're perplexed. As a matter of fact, then Jesus makes this statement. He goes, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Now, the way that we've handled this in the past, quite frankly, is just wrong because it, it's just not correct. You know, you've heard this one. Well, the eye of the needle, it really wasn't a needle. There was a little wall outside uh, of, the, of, the, of Jerusalem and of cities at that time. And they'd have a wall where a man could walk through, but it would, a camel really couldn't get into it. But if he got on his knees and he bowed his head and he went on a diet and all these things, then maybe you could jerk him through that hole. And that's really what he's talking about. No, it's not. That, that didn't even... That terminology didn't even show up in any of our literature until 400 years after the time of Christ. So there was no, that, that didn't exist during Jesus' day. So, uh, bad excuse. I, I used it when I was younger, forgive me, because uh, it makes you feel a little better. Oh, it's just saying it's really, really hard. No, that's not what he's saying. Some would say, well, you know, there's an Aramaic word for a type of thread that's thicker than typical thread, and it was always very difficult to get that through a needle, and that word is similar to camel. So what we probably have is a scribal mistranslation, and it was really talking about that type of thread. No, there wasn't a scribal mistranslation. That, then that analogy doesn't make any sense if you use that, by the way. So in, in just that one word, and then we had other problems if you go that direction. 
So that's not what he's talking about. You know what he's doing? He's using hyperbole. It's just like today when we go, well, if hell freezes over, I'll be there. I mean, it's, it's that kind of analogy. It's that kind of hyperbole. He's saying, you know what? This is very, very unlikely. This is very difficult. Don't count on this at all. This is very hard. He's given a tough statement. And the disciples are left trying to figure out what in the world are you talking about? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. Wow. Man, that's tough. What in the world is going on here? What in the world is Jesus saying? What is he communicating here? What is he trying to do? Well, let's talk about this for a second. First of all, what we know for a fact is that Jesus is not against money. Okay? He's not against even the accumulation of money. Now, he's, accumula- he's against the accumulation of dishonest gain, certainly. But it's not just money itself. But what he is teaching us is there's a significant danger to money. That money has the power like nothing else to blind us to truth and to blind us to God. Let me give you an example. And I think he's using the same example. If you know someone today who doesn't know Christ, who's very wealthy, it is highly unlikely in their current state that they're just going to go, you know, I think I need Christ. I think I need Christ. I think I want to get involved and I think I want to know God personally and I think I want to start making a big impact for His kingdom. That, that's not going to happen unless God intervenes. Unless divine intervention. And that's what we normally see, isn't it? If you know somebody who's been very successful, usually they kind of get on that track. If they don't already know Christ and they get on that track and it's just make more and more and they get consumed with it and they're blinded to life and they're blinded to God. But if God does something supernatural, you see tragedy strike, you see the dissolvement of that business, all of a sudden you see people awaken. And God's saying, on their own, They're not going to seek me. They're not going to seek me of their natural desires. Money has that kind of power that it will blind and block them from wanting to come to me. But with God, all things are possible. So what's the message for me today? Well, I think there are some hard messages there for you. Matter of fact, I want us to take a step back into history and just rethink this because there's a bigger message, a bigger picture here. If you look at other religions... They all have, they all still center around, and they all are most predominant in their original starting place. For example, Islam. Islam, still its bedrock is the Mideast. It's the Mecca area. It's where it first was birthed. And that is the stronghold of Islam. That is the center of Islam. Same thing is true for Buddhism, the, the Far East. The center of Buddhism is still in the Far East. But if you come to Christianity... Have you ever thought about how it has been highly mobile throughout history? I mean, it started in Jerusalem. And it started there, and it began to spread. But then through persecution, you see it starting to spread out in the Mediterranean world and through Rome. And that kind of becomes the stronghold. And it's, and it's there for several hundred years. And then after a, a few hundred years, then you start to see it move into Europe. 
And in Europe, it's there for the next 12 or 1300 years. The, you know, the, the Celts and the Germans and the Franks, all those regarded as barbarians, unclean barbarians. It just spreads like wildfire. And that's kind of the bedrock of Christianity up until about 200 years ago. And then we kind of see it moving western into the area of the North America and the United States. And even today, we still have the reputation of Christianity kind of being a Western religion or a, an American religion. But what's interesting is now we're seeing a, another change. We're seeing a change. If you realize that most of you know one of my best friends is an Episcopalian priest. And today, in the United States, the Anglican Episcopalian community, there are only about 2.8 million Episcopalians in the United States. But they're seeing revival happen in Africa right now. In Nigeria alone, there are 18 million professing believers of Christ. And we're talking about Africa, a continent where in the early 1900s, there was only 1% of the people who would call themselves Christian. 1%. Today, over 50% of Africa, Africans identify themselves as Christian. And in one country alone, there's 17 million. If you go just a little further into Uganda, there are 8 to 10 million Christians. In those two countries alone, there are over 10 times the number of Christian Anglican Episcopalians as there are in the United States today. In Asia, particularly in China, we're seeing just an explosion of revival happening in a closed country where we're seeing triple and quadruple growth every year in the faith. And today, there are more people in China that are Christians than there are in the United States. There are more Christians in Africa than there are in the United States. Why does this keep happening? Why throughout history do you see Christianity and whenever it is found, whenever a country or a nation or even a community of nations becomes powerful, becomes wealthy, then you see the faith start to migrate to another place, to another area. Why is that? You know why it is? Because the central message of the cross is this. It's sacrifice. It's giving. It's serving and when you begin to preach that message to an affluent, powerful people, it begins to fall on deaf ears. It'll literally become muted. And it'll start to become distorted in order to keep people happy, in order to keep people plugged in, so to speak. That message of sacrifice, of service, of giving. Oh, that's exactly what Jesus was teaching. You talk about a rich young ruler. Jesus was the ultimate rich young ruler. You think about it. He was the God of the universe. He came to the earth and walked on this earth and He gave it all. He gave it all. And so when He encounters this rich young ruler, He's one rich young ruler to the other. And he, basically He's saying, look, I want you to do what I've done for you. I want you to be willing to lay it all aside. I, as a matter of fact, I want you to literally do it. Because that's your God. That's your identity. Because you can't let go of it. And you can't be my disciple. You can't, I can't be your Savior if there's something that you hold higher than me. If anything takes that place, it is your God. And you cannot be my disciple. That message is still true for us today. Whew. Now that's a jawbreaker right there. So what do we see? We see revival happening 
where the, the Bible tells us God resisteth the proud but give the grace to the humble, God will continue, allow His Holy Spirit to move to where people are open, where people will humbly recognize their need for God. As long and as long as we continue on the path that we want to underestimate sin and overestimate our value of things, then we will see a great separation. And we'll see it. Here's what's going to happen in the next 30 to 40 years. No longer will this statement be true. Christianity. The bedrock of Christianity is the United States. That's the Christian nation. They won't think of us in those terms because there'll be so many more Christians in Africa and Asia that when you think of Christianity, those are the areas you will think of. Just like today, we don't think of the Mideast. Just like today, we don't, when we say Christianity, we don't think of the Mediterranean area. We don't even necessarily think of Europe anymore, do we? You're going to see that evolution continue. And the other world religions, they'll remain where they are, but Christianity will move where the Spirit is allowed to move and where the Spirit finds people who are open to giving their all, who are open to the cross and all that it means. So what does this mean for us today? What is the message for us today? I think it's this. <clears throat> Jesus, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll say, well, that's right. That's right. I, um, I, I, money's not, money doesn't have any effect on me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, I'm in control of it, and I do what I want, and, uh, but it's not my God. I can just lay it aside any time I want, and it, it doesn't really change me. It doesn't really have an effect on my life. Well, here's the real message. Recognizing that we all in this room live in the top 2% of wealth in the United States. I mean, we are the rich young rulers, guys. You know, if you're making over $25,000 a year here, you're a rich young ruler. Some of you might not be young, but you're a rich ruler, okay? So that's, that's the truth of where we are today. Jesus' message through the cross is this. When I chose to follow him, I gave everything. And it cost me to follow Christ. It cost me to be a disciple. If you're living a life that cost you nothing. I live in the house. I live in whatever house I want to. I drive the car I want to. I go to the restaurants I want to. I go wherever I want to. And my giving doesn't affect any of that. If my giving doesn't make me stop and think, you know what, if I do this, that means I'm not going to be able to give like I need to. It ought to affect and it ought to cost us something. It ought to cost us when we do our budget. There ought to be some things that we could do, but we can't do because we give. And if not, then we are the rich young ruler. Woo! That's hard, isn't it? You don't like that. I don't like it either, by the way. I was looking at my, I don't like this sermon. I hate it. I mean, I don't hate it, but I don't like it. It's hard. I'm convicted by this because I have to look and say, what are the things I'm not doing because I'm giving today? And we can try to play it off. And all we'll be doing is the rich young ruler. I mean, think about it. What if Jesus said to you, go sell everything you have and then come call me Lord. Give it all away. And then come follow me. Hey guys, we're getting off easy. Can I tell you that? The one who gave his all is asking for our all. And if we are still tied up with, do I have to do 10% or I don't have to give, you know, it's just a grace... 
then we're just taking a rich young ruler mentality. You know what? He'd have been pretty excited to say 10%. Matter of fact, he'd been excited. Zacchaeus, in the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 18, uh, after Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 17, he gave 50%. Hey, it's kind of hard doing it that way, but all we can know this is that to whom much is given, much is required. And tithing's a great baseline, but where God really wants is our heart. He wants it all. This morning, maybe you've never trusted Christ, and a message like this makes no sense. I get that. It's only through the transformation of Jesus Christ that you could even receive something of this nature. What's Jesus saying to you today? Let's pray. Father, if there's one who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to come and know you as Savior today. Lord, I, I, I thank you that while we're still sinners, you died for us. God, you, you have some hard things to say to us. You had hard things that you said then. And it seems even more difficult in our culture. But the one thing we know is that you were the ultimate ruler. You owned everything, and yet you gave it all away for our sake. God, I pray that we'd be faithful with what we've been given to sacrificially give for you and your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we would see that for many of us, this is at the heart of our relationship. It is the struggle that we deal with the most. It is the most representative act that we do that defines our heart for some people. Because wealth is so hard, because we're blinded by our money, and because we've been given so much. Lord, I pray that we would commit our wealth to You, we would commit our earnings to You, and we would see that we are simply stewards of the manifold blessings that You have given us. I pray this morning, Lord, if there's one that doesn't know You, that You would draw them now. And I pray, God, that this message would take root in our heart, convict us, and move in us. In Your name I pray. Amen. One other thing I want to share with you as we close out. I read an article by Empty Tomb Ministries this week. And uh, this couple has done research. And what they found was that, uh, that in, the, in our hemisphere today, that there is anywhere between 80 to $90 billion uh, it would take to basically eliminate hunger, uh, to provide clean water, to provide basic sanitation, to basically to bring about basic life, quality of life, on a very, very simple scale, but nevertheless, uh, for everyone in the Western Hemisphere. That's what it would cost. If people in the United States alone, each Christian tithe, that would be about $90 billion. What does that tell me? That tells me this. That tells me that when we ask the question, why are there people starving? Why do people have to live in those kind of situations, those conditions? Why didn't God do something? It tells me that God's already done it. The question is, why aren't we doing something?